This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Julia Malott is a transgender woman in Ontario, Canada. After running as a candidate for her 2022 school board trustee election, she has been active in school boards across Ontario. Julia holds herself as a voice against illiberal ideologies and seeks to bridge conversations about sex and gender in a way that brings about workable solutions for everyone. And here's our conversation with Julia. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I'm Aaron Kimberly uh, here with my host, Aaron Terrell. And um, Julia, we're really happy to, to have you join us today. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Um, you came on to our, my radar because you're a fellow Canadian um, who's, who's <laughs> uh, and there aren't many of us speaking publicly <laughs> about this, um, but you came onto my radar in the context of a podcast that, that you've just launched recently. Um, and that, it sounds like that came about because um, you were running for school board trustee in, in your province. And is it my understanding that your co-host or your transparency was also a school board trustee? Uh, in that election as well? Is that how you two met? Yes. Yeah. So Christina and I are working on a few projects together, one of which is um, our own podcast. And she also ran as a trustee. She's in Waterloo. I am in Kitchener. So two cities that pretty much make one city which I combined. And so we were both running in different wards. And um, so I'll, I'll link your your podcast um, in our liner notes so that people can can check that out. But I'd love to hear the bit of the background story about why you ran for school board trustee and, and sort of what was the context and what was going on in your world that you felt it was necessary to speak publicly like you have. Absolutely. So for me, this starts really a few years ago. Um, so my daughter is not my daughter by birth. She is actually my partner's little sister. No. One of my partner's little sisters was quite a few kids in that family. And a few years ago, she came to live with us. And this was right near the beginning of COVID. So school was online. So at first she continued to do um, distance ed school from the, the her birth parents live a few hours away. And then when she was going into her grade 10 year, she wanted to attend a bigger local school. So we enrolled her in the, the Waterloo Region District School Board here in our city. And for me, this was, I was really uncomfortable and nervous because I remembered back to when I was in school 20 years ago and how trans people were, were thought of and considered back then and thought, oh gosh, is anyone going to want to be friends with her? Or is she going to end up ashamed and embarrassed of me by having you know, a parent who's transgender? So I was uncomfortable and I talked about this with my partner and then September came and my daughter was in school. And in the first few months of that, I realized that schools are very different now than they were 20 years ago. Um, it was not at all a problem that I was transgender, which is great, but it was almost a, a, a status symbol. It was cool to have uh, a parent who's transgender. And this was my first exposure to what's going on in the schools right now in terms of identity politics and in terms of just how much we are, how much acceptance there is for um, LGBT individuals, which I think is a great thing, but also how much it has started to move into a realm of idolization, promotion, encouragement. Um, there's lots of words you could use to describe it, but a place that I was shocked. I was, I was a little bit uncomfortable seeing just how 
these how these matters are being handled and thought this this has got to be leading some kids to into this domain in a way that maybe isn't helpful for them and i knew of some of the books like abigail shear's book that had come out around this time um i had not read it yet i was actually quite scared of it because everything i was reading online talked about how hateful and horrible it was but that's when i started to think about these books and thought maybe i should look into this a bit and see what what's going on i'm just going to pause for one moment puppy stop okay Winston needs to be lifted up. So I'm not letting you outside, but I will lift you up on the couch. <laughs> this dog can't go up on the couch himself. This dog can. There. <laughs> uh, excellent. That's cute. I'll see if I can continue from where I was. <laughs> um, and so then, and so that was that was how my daughter's grade ten years started, and then in January of that year. A teacher named Carolyn Berjowski went to the Waterloo Region District School Board with a presentation about um, books in the school libraries and whether they were appropriate or not. And these books, many of them were LGBT focused, although they weren't all. And her presentation was just highlighting whether or not they had the same element that I was noticing of encouragement in terms of maybe leading our kids down a path that isn't right for them. And Carolyn is a, she's a wonderfully sweet lady. Uh, I didn't know her at the time, but I've come to know her quite well. And moving into this, I don't think she knew anything about how divisive this issue is. She just was a teacher and she wanted to express these, these concerns that she was seeing in terms of how the school was operating. So she went to the board and she did a presentation and about four minutes into the presentation, she was stopped by the chair. Um, he was worried that what was being said was transphobic and that it might have human rights implications. So ultimately they stood down her presentation. And I found out about this two days later when they sent out an email to all of the parents apologizing for the horrible transphobia that occurred in their board meeting. And of course, I can't help it. I've got to get it. I've got to see what's going on at that point. So the minute that I see that, I go to the website, they, they've pulled the video down, but thankfully Twitter had the video posted. So I went and watched, watched the video of her presentation. And I remember getting to the end of it and thinking, but but where does the transphobia come? I thought I thought maybe it was more video than what was posted. And then I realized that, that that was it. The four minutes where she just talked about these books and maybe it wasn't age appropriate because it was one of the books was for grades two or three and it was really talking about sexual attraction. And if a boy isn't you know attracted to girls and maybe, maybe he's gay and she's like, maybe it's because he's a kid. Maybe it's because he just isn't thinking about anybody <laughs> mm -hmm. that way yet and that's okay. And um, I come from the, the municipal sector. So I knew that 2022 was an election year. And the moment that I saw Carolyn's presentation, I just remember thinking, this is going to be the election issue in our region. Um, we're going to get a lot of people on both sides of this divisive issue coming in. And that's exactly what we had happen. Typically in Kitchener, we would have several candidates running. We had 17 candidates who ran. Wow. Um, and you get people all, of, all over that spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I deliberated on it for a while. I wasn't really at a point that I was prepared to speak out publicly quite yet. Um, I was scared for myself. I was scared for my family. And it's kind of nice in some ways to remain silent and behind a wall where you can think what you want to think, but not be held accountable for what you end up expressing publicly. Um, but I ultimately did decide to run as I started to read some of these books and started to understand really what was going on and understanding that I, I probably had a very important part to play because I am transgender, of course. So I do understand that side of the world. But I also understood this teacher's point. And I thought that what she was raising was very reasonable and that these are conversations we need to be able to have. 
And as I've come to know Carolyn and talked to her since, she's told me about how she didn't even need all of those books to be banned. She just wanted to have the conversation. She thought that we should be at a point that we could sit at a table and we could talk about whether these books were okay. We could talk about what our standard is. And it's it's pretty discouraging that we're at a point that you can't even question whether or not these mm -hmm. resources might go too far. Mm -hmm. I saw the presentation too before it was before it was taken off, um, offline. And I, I agree with you. I mean, she was just talking about the age appropriateness of some of the very sexually explicit material, like in an elementary school context. And she didn't say anything that I felt was transphobic. It was very focused on just the content of these books and the age appropriateness of that information. And is this the correct way to introduce some of these concepts to children? And and I, I agree that that conversation should happen. And the fact that it was very heavy-handed the way that that was handled and the way she was shut down and and you know accused of a human rights violation and uh, that censoring and hostility is um isn't doing us as trans people any favors in society because it, it makes us look like a you know like we're fascist totalitarian uh you know um dictators who are who are trying to control thought and control speech and and it's frustrating people exactly and for me there was an element of curiosity i didn't know carolyn at that point and i thought i i wonder where her views sit i wonder if she does know trans people i wonder if she really is out to cause a lot of problems for transgender people but she knows she can't say that or if she has no ill intention at all so part of getting involved was i was excited to meet her and get to know her and now she's she's a close friend of mine when I'm struggling. She's one of the people I call first. We went out and had wine, I think, last week when I needed to chat for a few hours. And it, any any of these narratives that I see online about transphobia couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and it's discouraging that we that we frame anybody who questions anything about policy as inherently transphobic or hateful just because there's some element of how a policy structure that they think might not be ideal. So what is what has been the uh, the reception to to you speaking publicly about it? So during my campaign, I stayed relatively quiet um, for a few reasons. One was just because I was busy. But if I'm if I'm to be honest, another part was it took a long time for me really to find my voice and be comfortable saying things. I wanted to play middle ground for quite a while, try to uh, appeal to both sides, and so I didn't say a lot publicly. I also didn't want to spend a lot of money on my campaign and I was able to do an election campaign without spending a dollar at all, which made my campaign finance filing really, really simple. So that was, that was a benefit. Um, so I ran this minimal campaign where I had a website, I had three or four paragraphs I wrote, I answered emails and people sent me messages, I answered phone calls, but I didn't do much at all. And I actually performed pretty well in the election. I got seven out of 17 and the top four make it in to be trustees for Kitchener. So I was really, really happy with, with how I did. The funny thing was I kind of knew that most of that was just riding on the fact that I was transgender. And a lot of people assumed they knew my message as a result of that. And as I started to get more vocal after the election and started to, well, I joined Twitter at that point and started to really post stuff. I saw lots of really interesting conversations of people well, there was this one on Twitter. There was this one. Uh, uh, there was this one conversation on Reddit where someone flat out said, "I assumed I knew what she stood for because she's trans, but now that now that she's saying this stuff, I'm not so sure." And I think in many ways I benefited from being the token trans person and people who align with that 
ideology and who want to see that policy move forward just presumed that I represented those views because I'm transgender. Um, speaking up was hard at first. It, it's scary. It's scary online in this domain um, because you get attacked from both sides. You get attacked yeah. from a crowd on the left and a crowd on the right. And I'd say the first few months were hardest because I didn't yet have connections. People like you, I didn't know yet. And so I felt a little bit alone, um, but it's been so nice to meet the community here in Ontario and in Canada who are aligned and, and concerned on these matters. And what I've come to find in the last month and a half or so is that it's possible to speak because I have people who will back me up. Um, I put out some videos last week that did quite well. And when I went and saw some of the some of the rather rude or hateful comments that get posted, I didn't even have to deal with them because a lot of other people responded in my defense. And it's nice to have a community there who cares about what you're saying. Yeah, I saw some of those videos and they were they were well done, right? They're just right, right on point and and reasonable. And I think it it catches people off guard sometimes, you know, when they think that there are these, you know, as you see, these sort of well-established trenches of of thought on both sides. And when someone steps forward and says something not expected, it it catches people off guard. You know, yeah, if, if I they think expected that... you to have a certain ideological slant just because you're you're a, a trans person. Exactly. I think it does catch people off guard and it's humanizing to be able to remember that transgender people are people like everybody else. Um, there's one one parent who I've come to meet, not in my school board, but a different school board, because at this point there's, there's about seven school boards that I'm working pretty closely with in Ontario. And I met this parent in person once. We had a conversation for maybe 30 seconds, um, but they've seen the stuff I'm posting. They've seen some of the delegations I've done. And they sent me a, a really, really wonderful message privately telling me the impact that I had on them and meeting me helped them understand that not all transgender people are the ideology that they were so against. And they said they went through their Twitter history and deleted a bunch of things that they posted because they're embarrassed by those now. And I barely know this person. I, I wish we had had more time to talk, but it's, it's nice that I could make that kind of an impact just by, just by existing and speaking up. Well, it's it's nice. It's, that's just kind of like one example of pro of what's happening on a larger scale. You know, it's like you got to have that that one on one interaction and and hear what happened in her brain and her understanding of all this because of what you said. But yeah, then all the people who you're not directly interacting with who are having the same kind of uh, yeah realizations. Exactly, and and I get so many positive comments when I'm putting out my my videos, which is nice. Um, but I also get another set of comments from. I've had quite a few people who either publicly or privately tell me these people are only supporting you because you're telling what they want to say. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll backstab you the moment that, that you don't align with their narrative. And that really comes to my other project, which is my podcast with um, Christina Fernandez. So she was uh, another candidate in the election. And I didn't actually meet her during the election time because I ran a very quiet campaign. And there were I never know the word to use. So I'm going to say anti-woke. Um, I don't love the word anti-woke, but I don't know what you what you refer to that, that side of the spectrum as otherwise. But there's a bunch of these candidates um, across our wards who had come together and formed a bit of an alliance as they were working towards their, their campaigns. Um, and I didn't meet any of these individuals because I was running such a quiet campaign. They, they discovered me though, about a week before the election. So I started to get these messages because they said, look, there's a, there's a trans woman who's saying the same thing that we are. Um, what's going on with this? So Christina was one of the ones who, who reached out to me. And I, she actually invited me to their campaign celebration party. So all of these candidates had a big party at a local brewery and she invited me out to it. So I went there with my daughter. It was a family friendly event. And 
that was one of the scariest experiences of my life because I was walking into this brewery that was filled with all of the people who were financially and publicly supporting the 11 transphobic candidates as they were being called by our news. And I was kind of walking in unannounced and going to be meeting all these people. And I didn't know what to expect, but I had a strong pull that I needed to be there, that this was a excellent opportunity to meet and connect. And so I, I went into the, into the brewery there and that was actually the first time that I met Carolyn. I walked in and within 30 seconds, she was right there and she saw me and never gave me a huge hug. And then I, I spent the night there and I met a whole bunch of wonderful people. And that was for me, probably the moment, the wake up call that I realized that people can disagree on matters and that doesn't make them mean that they're not loving. That doesn't mean that you can't be in community. And that certainly doesn't mean that they want anything ill for you just because they might disagree on, on certain elements of my transition or who I am. And so that was the night that I met Christina and we didn't get very much time to talk that night, but there was, there was really good connection. Um, she was really interested in knowing more and exploring more about my transition and who I am and what's going on for me. And she intrigued me as well because I know that she's very religious but she was so interested and, and I could feel the love emanating off of her from the moment that I met her. Um, so we decided to start recording every conversation that we had going forward. So other than that 10 minute conversation we had at the brewery, everything was recorded on Zoom or eventually in person when she started coming to my house here. Um, so we've amassed 40 plus hours of conversations from the, the mundane getting to know each other and finding out about each other's families to talking about some really deep, tough stuff. Um, we've had some pretty big arguments and challenging times and we've still decided to record those too. <laughs> so we have this history of our friendship forming. And for me personally, that has been wonderful just to have all that on record. Um, my views have changed quite a bit from talking to her over the last few months. And it's, it's really humbling to be able to go back and watch how those views changed over time and, and seeing stuff that I recorded with her three months ago and think, oh gosh, do I even want to release this? Because I'm embarrassed that I held that view three months ago, but I've kind of made a commitment that I will release these things because I think it's important to be able to be authentic about where I was at three months ago as I'm working through some of these matters and where I stand now. I think that in itself is courageous, right? To, mm -hmm. to you know, to just dive in and I mean, what you're modeling in that case is authentic relationship and how authentic relationship evolves and transforms, you know, potentially both people in that relationship and, and we grow. And I, I can definitely relate. And I'm sure Aaron, you can as well, that over the course of our podcast, we've both evolved in our thinking about things as well. Mm -hmm. And, and looking back, we, you know, things that, that I said in the past seem cringy now, but that's, that's the whole point of doing this, right? It's meant, what's the point of transparency and the risk of transparency if we can't all evolve and grow together. And I, I hope that our, the people that have been our, our loyal followers and are along this journey with us are evolving along with us. It's gotta be uh, uh, extra uh, uh, kind of revealing since it's just sort of meant to be like a one-on-one a, a -on -one conversation, right? Between two people kind of like, as you said, basically just like getting to know each other all along the way and recording. And so are you, are you releasing every single one of them or was it just recording every single one of them? Yeah, we have a release problem with our podcast. We're, we're really good at talking to one another. We're not very good at editing. Um, and we've realized we've kind of walked ourselves into a bit of a corner because 
we have these conversations that make a lot of sense to us with the context of when we had them and how we had them. But when we start cutting it up, we go, oh gosh, this makes no sense when you don't have this six hour context. Because sometimes we sat for six hours and talked straight. And so by hour four or hour five, you're referring to things that you talked about two hours earlier. And without that, it really doesn't have a lot of um, kind of, it, it's not very contiguous. So we that are struggling. Sense, yeah. yeah, so we're struggling with what to put out, exactly how to go about it. Um, we really believe there's a lot of important content there. The people who have heard some of the raw recordings have affirmed that yes, we do need to we need to put this out. Um, we're still experimenting with the format a bit. Where we think we're going to land at this point is cut out little snippets that we think are important, and then record us now talking about then. So start it by saying, "We did this three months ago. This conversation because this was happening. This is where we stand now." But then we can go back and play that clip, and then at the end come back to it. Um, that's where we think we're going to go, but. It's evolving. It's something that we're we're experimenting with, and it's amazing how much time it takes to make a podcast. You uh, you two get episodes out a lot, and you must spend a lot of time putting this all together. Because Christina and I certainly, <laughs> I just show for the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, well, well, I do regardless. I, until recently, I do love the scheduling, but I know the editing is is all uh, all thanks to Aaron. So <laughs> I I don't know that I don't know that that uh, that struggle. <laughs> I've become pretty efficient at at doing it, so it doesn't it doesn't take it long anymore. Now that I kind of understand the software, and okay. I, we don't tend to edit a lot out of of our mm -hmm. conversations, we we tend to leave them pretty raw. Right. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think Christina and I have a focus problem right now too, and that we're both involved in so many initiatives across school boards, working with parents, making other videos that were. And we have our, we each have our own families. So we're trying to balance all of that, um, but we need to get content out. Christina sends me messages every every two or three days, passive aggressively reminded me that my commitment is to do what, what you're doing, Aaron, and to get, get things edited so we can get this out. Could you give us an example of, for, for you, something that's an opinion that you held and changed your mind through the courses of conversations with her, and maybe an example of one from her as well that she's shared? Yeah, absolutely. I need to decide which one I want to go into. Um, <laughs> hmm. Yeah, okay. I'll talk about this one. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a conversation in our early days about the word groomer, because that's a word that gets thrown around online quite a bit right now. And I, I understand where where people are coming from with the word. Um, I also think that it can be used mostly just as an attack. It doesn't lead to good conversation. And so it wasn't a word that I felt particularly comfortable with. And it's a word that Christina was was utilizing in some of her some of her posts online. And of course, there is a there's a large local crowd who's made it their mission to try to prove to me that I shouldn't be associating with someone like Christina. So every time Christina posts something that they don't like, I will get messages publicly or privately asking me if I affirm her and if I'm gonna condemn her and, and all of this. And I have no interest in doing that um, like online. I'm not, I'm not here to babysit what she posted to tell her what she should or shouldn't say, but it did come up in one of our early recording sessions about what that word means, where the history is, where it comes from and whether it really adds to the conversation productively or not when people are calling each other groomers. Um, I don't think it's productive, but I was pretty, I was pretty upset and pretty offended um, in the conversation that we had when we recorded that a few months ago. 
because I was taking it personally in a way that I don't think I needed to. No one's calling me a groomer, but I made the association that some people are calling trans women groomers and that the word being used is directed at me. And so I, I, I kind of argued with her from that place and going back and, and listening to that now, I don't, I don't think that was fair to her. Um, but I think her view also evolved from that as well because she did stop using the word the way that she was. I think she understood how it maybe isn't the most productive way to bring the conversation forward, regardless of what your intention is. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. And it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I mean, I don't want to be associated with groomers either. I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel that I'm guilty of that, but there, there do seem to be individuals within the LGBT that I, I would say are, are grooming young people. So it's difficult, right? How do we call out the specific individuals and specific um, actions on their part without implicating all of us in in that and i feel that's more challenging for some for some reason i think because people in general don't really understand what trans is for the most part even those that want to be allies and supportive i mean if you ask them well what is trans i don't know that they would necessarily be able to really define it in a deep way other than just the political narrative oh well someone that whose gender identity doesn't fit their body right i mean that's sort of the line that everyone's been fed so i think People don't understand trans. It's it's sort of this vague, nebulous concept um, that a lot of different experiences and identities can get projected into, and uh, everyone has their own pet theories of including trans people of of what trans is. But I think it's really difficult for people to separate trans people or the trans experience from the current political narrative, the wokeness. Whereas I think other groups, you know, like people of color, for example, I think are better, people are better able to separate the color of someone's skin from these ideas that are floating around. And these are new concepts and new ideas. And I think that's easier for people to wrap their heads around that. I don't agree with these ideas, but I don't, I don't, I still respect people of a certain, you know, certain race or background or, or skin color. Um, but I don't think people can separate transness in the same way from these ideas. And maybe that's in part our fault because we're letting those people speak on our behalf. But when people can't separate the two things, the hostile, growing hostility people feel towards the ideas are getting, it's landing on the shoulders of, of the people, whether we agree with those ideas or not. I yeah, think, I, I think, think what that has to do with oh go I'll no, 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 get this ahead, out. Yeah. Um this uh we kind of we kind of exploded in numbers at the exact same time that the ideology you know crept its way into the um into the mainstream. So right so about the same time the general populace is realizing oh there's trans people in my you know kids school or now I've got this trans coworker you know at the same time that they're hearing about um you know, how everything's transphobic and, you know, it's like, it all happened simultaneously where it wasn't like, oh, you know, I, you know, have had, you know, friends of different races and it wasn't only until, you know, yesterday that, that all of this, that, that what I'm supposed to understand about that experience has to be completely uprooted. So I think that that could be a lot to do, do with it is that they're, they're unable to extricate us from the ideology because we became on their radar at the exact same moment uh, the ideology did. Yeah, and, and I think it isn't helped by the fact that we have taught and continue to teach people that you shouldn't talk about these things in public. When I transitioned at work, I 
let me try this again. When I transitioned at work, I took about 18 months from when I started on hormones until I actually kind of came up publicly at work because I wanted to be at a point that I was ready. And, but I'm also, I'm a pretty open person. So about half my company already knew on various conversations. And I was being called both Jason and Julia in the office at the same time, which was very confusing for people who hadn't been told. But when we got to the point that I was doing a formal cutover, I sent an email out to the, to the company and said, look, this is happening. This is what I'm doing. Um, if you have any questions, seriously, come talk to me. I'm, I'm very open and happy to talk about it. And nobody did. Nobody asked anything. And that shocked me at first. But what I came to find in the months and years that followed is that people have tons of questions. Of course, they have questions about surgeries and how does this work with your family and all kinds of things. But they, they believe that it's inappropriate to ask because that's what we've told them. And as I've seen what we're teaching in school, we're explicitly saying you can't ask this. You have to ask pronouns of everybody. You can't ask anything about why you're doing this, how you feel. You have to just pretend you don't see it, pretend that you're completely unaware and not everybody's good at acting. So all of a sudden they're thinking, oh gosh, I don't know how to act around this person. I don't know what to say. I might mess up and say the pronouns they don't want and then they're gonna call HR and I'm gonna, and then they just don't wanna talk to you at all. And I think that that also adds to the animosity and it's really unfortunate because I think for myself and many of the trans people who I know this is a huge part of your life and who doesn't want to talk about their life and what's going on as long as it is a respectful conversation from someone who's actually interested in knowing what's going on for you. Yeah, I actually feel relief when people ask respectful, open, honest questions. And you can always sense the intent behind questions, right? I mean, in, in their in their tone or whatever. And as long as a question is is sincere, I, I actually welcome those questions because that is the beginning of an authentic relationship with people. And it's it's kind of a relief for me to even to to be able to let my guard down and just speak honestly about about that experience and be understood by other people. Yeah, no, exactly. I yeah, no, exactly. I'm curious. Um uh you said that uh, it was it was uh, 2020 when this all kind of came on your radar. So I'm curious, when when did you transition? And it sounds like from that point on, you were very much offline if you weren't aware that about the about the climate uh, until 2020. So yeah, if you want to tell a little bit about uh, the rock you were living under until 2020, <laughs> <laughs> the rock I was living under. All right, uh, I'm going to back up a little bit and start many years before that. Okay. Um, so my, my story is the same that you hear from a lot of people, which is that you always knew. And I, I struggle with that always knew because you don't know when you're five, you don't have the words, but things never meshed well. Um, I was an anxious kid. I was an unhappy kid. My mom would always say that I was the happiest kid she knew until I hit school. And from the moment that I hit school, I was anxious and I was unhappy and I didn't have any friends and I saw so many counselors and therapists who were trying to find the solution of how we were going to teach Jason to get along with the boys because this was the 90s so that was that was the solution and so they bought me a basketball net and my dad would go out and play catch with me and I, I didn't want to do any of these things but that was what they were what they were going for and I was the I was the theater kid I was the I, I was just a, I was a very effeminate young boy and that grew for me until grade seven and it was in grade seven that things I, I really realized what wasn't lining up I, I was talking to a friend in the schoolyard and I was starting to really resent all the girls and everything the girls could do and have that I couldn't do 
And I made some comment like, but we all feel that way, right? Like we just, we want to have, we, we want to, we all want to be a girl and girls all want to be boys, right? Because we just haven't experienced that. And, and my friend just kind of looked at me and said, no, I, I don't, I don't feel that way. I don't think people feel that way. And that was when it kind of clicked of like, oh, maybe, maybe I feel differently than other people do on this. Um, so I went, I spent that a few weeks kind of thinking about this and reflecting on it. And then I, I went to my computer and started to look things up and it was funny. I had a, I had this old computer in my bedroom and my mom did not like that. I had a computer in my bedroom because church had taught her that you're, you know, your teenage boy was only going to use that for porn. And <laughs> I have never looked at porn in my life. I have no interest, but what I did use my computer for was to look up was gender dysphoria and back in the early 2000s there was very few resources online about this it was mostly blogs that trans women would have posted that were not informative from a scientific point of view but they were informative in terms of the fact that this exists that there are people who transition and that might describe their experiences and i remember the first time i came across a site and i just thought that's that's me everything they're describing about how they feel like that that is me that's that's what i am and there was this huge sense of relief at that point, thinking, okay, I'm not alone. Like other people feel this way. I am alone because I don't know anybody and I won't, can't talk to anybody, but at least I had an explanation for what was going on. Or at least what I, what I felt. And I, I shouldn't even say explanation because it was no answers, but it was just the being able to feel seen. Like I, could, I, I had some language now to make sense of what was going on in my head. So this would have been 12 years old, I think. Um, and I, I should say here too that I was deeply religious. We were at an evangelical church, and this was right around the time that um, gay marriage was becoming a thing in Canada. It wasn't yet legal, but people were working towards that, so it was a big topic in our church. So I'm in a, a church here where I'm hearing about all of the the horrible evils that it is to be gay and how we need to fight against this. And my takeaway from that was well if people who are gay are so bad then like what am i because they weren't even talking about trans people of course that wasn't on the radar it was just people who are gay are so sinful and so horrible and and i internalized that into a lot of shame and so i didn't tell anybody when i was in in middle school and high school how i felt i i kind of held it to myself uh, and i was a very rational kid so i started to read read lots of studies online i read the, some of the blanchard studies and some of the Lawrence papers as they came out. I remember reading Bailey's book, was that 2005? Um, secretly, of course, I had to pirate it because I wasn't there gonna go to a library and be seen with any of this because I had so much shame that like, what if somebody, what if somebody saw? And I remember I had a spreadsheet going where I was kind of looking at the cost of what it would take to transition. But I think a bottom surgery was something like 17 or $18,000 is what I found online. And I had like $200 and I thought, how am I ever <laughs> gonna transition? And then I, I break I it open the piggy bank. Lemonade stand. <laughs> yeah, it was it was not a, not a prospect that was going to work. And I was my spreadsheet was thorough, too. I'm like, and I'm going to have to run away from home and live alone. And no one's going to want to hire me because I'll be trans and all of these. And, and it, it wasn't a proposition that made much business sense at all. So when I was in my grade 10 year, I for whatever reason at that point in life decided I have to make a decision. I have to make a decision now and go forward. I can't keep living in this. I don't know what I'm going to do place. And so I could transition or I could not. And I decided I wasn't going to transition because I couldn't even tell my parents how I felt. And I, I decided that and I went forward. And I dove really deep into my church at that point and ended up dating a, dating a girl that I, I later married. Um, we started dating in that, in that year and we, we went forward and got married after that. And 
the the shame that I had repressed continued to be there and continued to build. And it it was there for, I guess, really until my transition in my late 20s. Um, and it led to a lot of narcissism. Um, and I didn't see it at that point. Um, I had a lot of, I caused a lot of pain for my, my ex-wife now, not from transitioning, but from my relationship prior to transitioning, because I was unhappy. I had chosen not to be happy by not facing this and filled my life with anything and everything that distracted me from it. And that meant that I was also distracted from her. That meant that I was chasing um, financial success rather than relational success. And my life kind of came to a point in my late 20s where everything was falling apart. Um, and it was all self-inflicted. These were bad decisions I was making um, because of my unhappiness. And when I eventually ended up in the hospital for suicide, um, I finally had the guts to talk to a um, psychiatrist about what was going on. And that was for me the start of going on the path that I ultimately went down with the uh, transition. How long ago was that? That would have been five five years ago now. Okay, okay. Yes, 20, I think that's our math works. Yeah, 2018 was okay. the year, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so you how... weren't enmeshed in the trans community, I take it. Right, that was the question you asked and I answered a very different question. No, but that, that's so, all good information to have as well. <laughs> yeah, so, so for me, I once I made the decision that I wasn't going to transition in 2004 or five or whatever year that was, I kind of stopped reading things online. Every once in a while, maybe every year or two, I'd have a little moment that I'd dive in. I was always thinking about this, of course, but it didn't really matter what was going on. I had no community around it. I might read a study here and there, but I didn't engage deeply until 2018. and. What changed for me then was that that was right around the time it was starting to change in society. And I was very involved in theater, which meant that I knew a lot of um, students and young adults who were quite a bit younger than me. And their view of everything around transgender matters was very different than my generation. And so I started to hear things from them and see things from them that opened me up a bit to thinking maybe this isn't the most, maybe this isn't something that's as shameful as how I had always held it to be. Um, I remember when I, I was writing someone a letter in early 2018, and I wanted to tell them how I felt about this. And when I got to the point that I even had to just write, you know, I have always felt like I should have been born a girl. I couldn't write it. Just even typing it on my computer felt so gross and icky and embarrassing that I, I stopped writing the letter for weeks. And it was, it was this younger generation that helped me to open up a little bit about this. And so that was when I started to explore what was going on, understand how society was changing. I still wasn't very connected in with many of the, the academic stuff that was going on and all the books that were coming out at that point. Those I got into later after my transition had begun. Got it. Yeah. So how do you make sense of, of your experience now? Like how, you know, um, I mean, I think we all have to land on, on some kind of framework that makes sense to us just so that we can move on and get on with our lives. So what, what kind of, I know you said you don't really have answers, but what at this point does make sense to you? How do you hold together your, your own identity and, and make sense of your experience? Yeah, I, I'd say that I've certainly gone through phases with that as well. Um, when I was younger, when I was in my teens and early adulthood, I had coupled the justification for transition with whether or not there was a biological explanation for why people feel this way or not. Or to put that more simply, 
if I had a woman's brain and a man's body, then I should transition. If I didn't, then I shouldn't transition. So I spent a lot of time trying to find answers to that particular question. Um, and no answers exist for that question, of course. So that that didn't get me anywhere useful. Um, when I eventually decided to transition then, when I was in my late 20s, it was, I had been suicidal for a long time and continued to be suicidal. And as I mentioned, it was the shame that was keeping me from addressing this. And I had realized at that point that I might as well try because if transition didn't work, I could still kill myself later and I wouldn't have lost anything. See, isn't that a rational way to think about suicide? Um, so I so I started to transition. And of course, what that did was it helped me to work through my shame and it ended up resolving a lot of what I had going on. But the, the, the question remains for me still, was it the transition that resolved a lot of what I had going on or was it dealing with the shame of not dealing with how I was feeling that, that addressed that? And I, I don't have answers to that still today. Um, I feel much, much better today. I have much healthier relationships today, but why that is, I, the, the verdict is still out in a certain sense. So as far as my framework, when I, when I started to transition, I adopted a lot of the narratives that I think many people do when they transition of they're looking for affirmation and support. And there is a community out there that will give that to you and will tell you what you want to hear. And we'll use the pronouns and we'll use the language that helps you to feel like you have a place and like you matter and like you really are, well, in my case, I really am female. And so I had that given to me by a lot of people. And I think that was helpful for me in the early days because it at least helped me to break, break down the shame and to work through a lot of what was going on for me. Um, but, but I definitely reached a point of concern as I moved through this and came to understand that a lot of people in the transgender community really do believe that they're female <laughs> in a way that they're biologically not and that there are a whole bunch of reasons why that's problematic. Um, so then I adjusted how I viewed it for myself and said, okay, well, I'm not female. I am biologically male. That has important implications for the health system. And I should acknowledge that for myself, but I am a woman. Right. And that was kind of where I sat for a while. And that, that worked, that worked for me for a while. Uh, it was probably, that probably worked for me until I started to have my conversations with Christina, actually. One of our early, early recording sessions, I put her on the spot and I asked her just, am I a woman or not? And I wanted to know what she'd say to that. And by this point though, we, we already had a friendship. We had a friendship, there was a lot of love going on there. And so I knew that her answer was with love. And she told me that, well, no, I'm not, I'm a trans woman. And that difference was important to her, that the, the word trans sits there to qualify it. And I remember after we recorded that night, like I was just, I think with two or three days, I was really distraught and it was eating away at me that, that she had said that. And that was a good time for me to reflect and say, why did that bother me so much? Um, it's a word, <laughs> it's a word, it's a label. And I know she means nothing, no, no harm to me by it. So why am I so attached to being called a woman. And for me, that is a view that has been shifting and is continuing to shift. If I don't really know what I am at this moment. Um, I don't know what word is most appropriate. And I don't actually care as much as I used to either. I want to be around people who love me and respect me and want me in their community. And if they don't view me as a woman, that is fine. And if they do, that's fine too. And 
I don't know how to answer this question because I don't know how I view myself at this point. I've got a, I've got a new identity crisis going on. In a certain <laughs> <way>. <laughs> it's yeah, a difficult you... question. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, by her offering, I see you as a trans woman. I mean, I think that's, that's maybe, I mean, that does create space for you. I mean, she could have, she could have said, no, I see you as a man. Um, so the fact that she said, I see you at not as a woman, but as a trans woman, I feel like that's maybe a compromise place that I hope our society can can settle on that, you know, from both the, from the trans community and the community at large, that it 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 creates this metaphorical space for us in society, you know, rather than I don't know how else to articulate that. But I think that I think that's a fair space for us all to enter into that isn't as divisive and polarizing and still allows us to to pre look, present as we are and, and exist as we are and, li and live with others without, without trying to manipulate what it means to be biologically male or female. Yeah, no, I, I, think you've, I think you've nailed it there. And for a lot of people, I think the language becomes a concern because of the implications that rise out of it. They get very defensive. Well, no, I am a woman because they're afraid of what it would mean to not be, what comes next, what are people going to exclude me from or prevent me from doing. And those are those are all important conversations that we need to have, but the language itself is just a word. And I think we spend a lot of time arguing definitions that isn't maybe particularly helpful for anybody. <laughs> I think I had a similar kind of uh, trajectory you did as far as like the um, the kind of the 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 yeah the kind of like, like queer theory type uh, language where it's it, it appeals so you get kind of wrapped up in the in the uh, the kind of gender ideology stuff because it it tells you everything you always wanted to believe and how you know it's really difficult to reject something because this this is objectively false when it brings you so much comfort, you know, and reduces so much, yeah, shame, um, dysphoria, whatever it may be. And, um, but then, so, yeah, so I, I got to the same part where it's like, no, I'm obviously, I used to think that I was a transsexual male, that was a trans, you know, like transsexual was the adjective, what I was was a male, right? It was just transsexual to get there. And then I realized, I can't remember exactly when or how, um, but I realized, no, I am uh you know, I can be a I can be a trans man, but I'm still and always will be biologically female. But I'm a man because that's a that's a gender designation, and gender is different from sex. So, and then you know, it's got to come full circle where it's like you just kind of like these these baby steps to wean yourself off of this uh, uh, really helpful um, uh, yeah, just just way of theorizing it. And it is it is just our, us manipulating language to make it us feel better, right? And so, I. Uh, you know, I can accept that I'm that I'm female, um, and I the way I look at it. And Aaron, I'm not sure if you think that this might might drive with what you're you're hoping for is that 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 metaphorical middle ground there. But I think of it as like a trans man is a type of female, and a trans woman is a type of male, rather than the reverse, which is what you know I previously like to think of it as. So, um, but yeah, if other, if the rest of the world, you know, would kind of, if we could yeah, come together on that common ground and that kind of, um, uh, what, what is it, you know, uh, compromise, I don't, I don't see the, 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 the trans activists uh, liking that, that so much though. <laughs> You know, the trans activists, they, they don't realize that they're driving the extreme on the other end. And, you know, that, that 
the more radical um, the more radical the left gets, the more radical the right gets, because the right and the left are meant to to balance one another. So it's yeah, the, I think I think the left is going to have to concede and and roll back some of this. It's it's inevitable. Like we can't just continue on doing what we're doing. Completely yeah, well, unsustainable. Yeah, one thing that I learned um, over the last few years for myself too, I don't know how this applies to the trans man side of the conversation, but for me and for most trans women, you don't fully pass. So you don't get to a point that you can go out into the world and expect to perfectly blend in. And when I was subscribing to a lot of the queer theory way of viewing myself and viewing the world, I, with my friends, with people who affirm me, who love me, who care for me, and then they would mess up and say he when referring to me because I would send certain male signals. And I understand that now, but at the time that would that would destroy me. I would remember that for days or weeks, not even want to see that person. But what I realized is that I was doing that myself because I was creating a world that was untrue, which is I'm female. I'm just like all the other girls. I go out there, nobody sees a difference. And the minute that then I get he, it would rip all that apart for me. And I think, oh, right, this person sees me differently. And they, they do see me differently and that's okay. But to lie to myself and to pretend that they don't doesn't help the friendship and certainly doesn't help my own mental health. Yeah, yeah it's a very uh, unstable place to, to kind of be reliant on, on everybody around you to maintain, you know, your internal understanding. Um, yeah, it puts you in a delicate position and puts them in an uncomfortable uh, position, yeah. And, and I resonate with something that, that you mentioned earlier, which is what I really want to look for is people's intention behind it. If somebody is trying to use language in a way to get me, to hurt me or to put me down, then that's a different story. But if somebody loves me and cares for me, why do I need to care what language they use, what pronouns they use? It, it shouldn't need to matter so much. And I reached a point now that it doesn't, but it, it took a lot of work to undo some of those ways of thinking that I had adopted because as you as you said it is it makes you feel good it's exactly what you want to hear what I wanted to hear as I was as I was embarking on my transition and it is something that that you know we're seeing more and more on the gender gender critical side or the radical feminist side is um is that that intention of of hostility right the intention of of not 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 just retaining their understanding of material reality, but actually going in people's faces and saying, you're a man. And there's, there's no good that can come of that. I mean, yes, it's, it's true what there's, what they're saying in terms of our biological reality, but it, it's crossed the line into, into just a form of, of harassment when, when the intent is to hurt and harm. Absolutely. I think the intention is, is so important and it's, it's pretty easy to tell. My experience on that front though really has been quite tame. Um, I, when I entered the space, I was certainly worried about what kind of negativity to, to put it mildly I might get in that, in that respect. And it has come from a lot of anonymous accounts who can hide behind any sort of attachment to their everyday life. Um, but as far as a lot of the, the more prominent names out there, I think there's a lot of mutual respect understanding that they have concerns that I think have validity to them, um, that they're also being ignored. And I think the transgender people have concerns and have validity. And I do believe that there's a workable way forward that 
covers the needs of both both sides of this discussion. And my experience has been that people see that in me in terms of what I'm saying and where I'm going. And so that's been really encouraging. In the early days of transactivism, and I, I don't I, I don't see it so much from the, the trans woman perspective, just because that that hasn't been my peer group and, and my personal experience. But looking at it from the early days of trans men organizing and um, and developing, you know, a, a civil rights movement, it, it was a lot. It looked a lot more like the civil rights movement of the gay and lesbian community or what we saw um, around, you know, African-Americans. It, it was a civil rights movement based on building bridges, helping people to understand our experience and based on, on personal character and our, our responsibility in the world. I mean, it, the old school transsexuals wanted to integrate into the world and get along with people. And, um, and we don't do that by lying to people or, you know, screaming at them if they get our pronouns wrong. And, and so I, there, a lot of work was done. And I think, you know, in the, the early 90s and the really early 2000s, a lot of progress had been made for social acceptance of trans people. And I feel like that's all being dismantled because of wokeism, that people are so frustrated with wokeism and this environment of, of cancellation and separation and hostility it's this, it's no longer a movement about personal character. And that's ultimately, I think that's what, what we all want is to be able to just live in our communities and be respected as individuals, regardless of, of our differences. I hope that's what we all want. It's certainly what I want. Yeah. I, I don't know how we lost sight of that, you know, and I, I hope that that's something that we could come back to. It, it doesn't because it, I think trans activists see it as an either or. It's like you either believe in wokeism or you believe in our annihilation, <laughs> and, and they don't seem to see that there are other models uh, of social justice. You know, there's there's I mean, if you two grew up in in ev evangelical homes, so there's you know there's biblical social justice and and what how they define that. There's there's the civil rights movement of Martha. Luther King Jr., like there's different models of social justice. So it's not about you take away wokeism and we have no model for social justice at all. So it's just this this chaos of people, you know, murdering yeah. each other. Like so I hope that that's maybe a pathway forward. And I think that's what um FAIR is trying to do. And, and I'm glad that they've moved into Canada. But um FAIR is is a going back to the roots of a civil true civil rights movement and and advancing you know they call it a humanistic perspective that they're advancing the dignity and equality of human beings without wokeism and I, I think that is the pathway forward for us to to and i think it might be helpful for the trans activists um to see this new model being built i think it gives them a I, i'm a big believer in build it and people will come that if they see a space of dignity that they can move into that might go better than if they feel cornered. I'm, I'm really concerned with some of the language that they're using online because they feel cornered, they feel desperate, they feel scared. And they're starting to talk about things like this is, this is genocide and we need to arm ourselves. And I, I do worry, you know, that how, when they start to speak like that and the mob mentality and they're, you know, they're, they're spreading these ideas of panic and and violence i do worry if they're cornered that that they could become very unstable and real violence could happen and and so i think the solution is if you create a space of dignity and and another model 
And if they see us successful in building that, then hopefully they'll just come alongside us rather than feeling cornered and desperate. Yeah, and that, I, that's the message that I've really been trying to send is that you can you can question some of this ideology and still love transgender people. And a lot of the, the individuals who I am hoping will hear my message are the ones who have skepticism towards what's going on and are currently putting that on trans people themselves. And I wanna be an example for them of how those two can be distinct and you can be a loving, caring person and also question at the same time. I think one of the problems uh, is, is with the, with finding the you know the, the the middle road the 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 rational way to approach all this is a lot of the people I think who are drawn to basically be like you know trans activism um it, it I think a lot of it is the grievance that appeals to them more than actually transitioning or more than the the identity itself or whatever it might be I think I think I think the the having a grievance having something to fight against feeling like you're being like you're you're somehow um you know, being righteously, you're righteously fighting oppression, like that, it, that itself is the draw. And I think they don't want that taken away. Like they don't want a reasonable resolution, you know, mutual, you know, mutually beneficial. It's like they want, they need a holy war to fight against. And that's what, that's what it all is about them. And I think those are the people who are really fucking us over, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a great book by Mark Yarhouse. Um, about gender dysphoria and this is a he's a Christian author and I got this book because when I started my transition my mother said right off the bat she would only read Christian resources about anything I was doing and I said great well then I will get all those books and read those books too and in the end she still wouldn't talk about it with me but I, I had a great time reading a bunch of these books and and so Mark Yarhouse describes a few different frameworks within which you could understand um, transgender matters and the first one of those that he talked about was what he calls the disability framework. And this is that concept that there's something about me and you that's, you know, in, in a sense, a disability, something is wrong. Maybe it is psychosocial, maybe it's biological. We don't need to know, but something is wrong. And transition, in some cases, might be an appropriate path in order to relieve that dysphoria and to allow people to thrive. And it's something we can do out of compassion. And that's the one he gets behind. And he is a, he's a supporter of trans rights and transition for that purpose and within that domain. And then he talks about another framework though that he sees emerging. And I think this book is 2017, so it's, it's, a, it's a few years old now. And that's what he calls the diversity framework. And that is that mindset that it is about finding an identity and finding a way to describe yourself. And that's where you don't have to have dysphoria at all because it's more just about the uniqueness of it. And that's the one that he condemns more strongly from his religious background. And for me, that's been a really helpful way to look at it too, is I, I subscribe to that disability mindset of something something about me wasn't working. And now we found a way that I can, I can live and I can be happy and I can thrive. And that's a great thing. But as we know, transition comes with medical risk. Transition comes with expense. It's not something that I would want anybody to take if there's an easy path to help them thrive without it. And I think a lot of activists do find that very threatening because they want this to be something that is just about diversity for diversity's sake. 
it goes it mm -hmm. kind of circles right back to where you started with uh, the, the the concern about the glorification um, that you're seeing in the schools and whatnot. And that's that's exactly what it is. Is is they yeah, it's it's a celebration that's just drawing in people who you know are just being yeah uh, hurt rather than helped by it. Yeah, and that, that has been my message to the a lot of the school boards that I'm speaking at is it's great that you are trying to create acceptance, just like we do lots in our schools to make sure that Christians and um, Muslims and people of all faiths are accepted. And we teach our children that people may believe differently than you, they may have different customs, and we should accept and include regardless. But when I see a wall that's covered in the 84,000 different sexual or gender identities that you can have with their unique flags and all of this celebratory behavior around it. My question to the schools is, and where do you discuss the implications of adopting some of these identities? Where do you talk about the risks of hormones and the risks of surgery? And where do you talk to the kids about what's gonna happen if you do adopt one of these identities, but you, you come from a very religious family where that might actually be a, an existential problem for you and your household when you're 12. And if we're going to, if we're going to talk about it in the way that we do, I think you need to cover it from both of those sides because that's part of the equation. Having having been through surgeries, they they come with a lot of baggage that people should know about. And of course, what everyone tells me then, not everyone, but what, what the, the activists tell me then is, well, that's not the school's job. And I agree, it's not the school's job, but if the school is going to be putting this stuff in such a way that it encourages people to think about these things, then I think it becomes the school's job. Right. It's the, it's the school's job to glorify it, but to not uh, warn about the ramifications. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, Julia. This has been, this has been great. Absolutely. Thanks yeah, for been, having me. It's been wonderful to sit down and talk to you. And I'll, I'll put uh, I'll put a couple of things in the liner notes. So I'll put a link to uh, the Mark Yarhouse book that you mentioned and, and your podcast as well so that people can check it out. Awesome. I appreciate that. Okay. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.